Welcome back to another edition of the Road Dogs Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Shaw, joined by my cousin and co-host, Josh Shaw. Josh, say hi. It's uh, it's a good day to be a good day. Baseball's back, Nick. Baseball is back. America's pastime. My pastime, honestly. Today we will not be discussing baseball, though. We will be discussing The Big Lebowski, released in 1998 on March 6th. Pretty cool day, not going to lie. Maybe one, um, the, maybe, maybe one of the two dogs was born on that day. Starring <laughs> Jeff Bridges, John Goodman, Julianne Moore, David Huddlestone. Basically a murderer's row of A to B list studs. Would you agree or disagree, Josh? Oh, yeah. Like, this is yeah. the great thing about the Coens is, like, everything they do, it's a lot of character actors or they're, like, really getting someone at, like, the low point of their apex or, like, the peak of it or, like, building them up. I think of, like, Francis McDormand. I think of Bro in a No Country. I think of Harrelson in No Country. They have this really great eye of just talent. Yeah, so uh, we're doing The Big Lebowski. Reason why, this movie just turned 25, which is pretty crazy to think about. Um, I wanted to rewatch it just because it's definitely in my top 10 movies of all time. Uh, I thought that it was a good time to revisit it. It's still funny. I think it's still very socially relevant, maybe more so now than when it was first released. Um, but I think what makes this episode a little different and interesting is this a movie that we've both seen probably multiple times and have pretty different opinions on. Um, so I guess I'll start off by saying, Josh, when was the first time you saw this and have your feelings and opinions changed on it at all? I first saw this when I was probably 14 to 15 because I think you were bugging me about it. He's like, I love the Big Lebowski. You got to watch the Big Lebowski. And, and I kind of was like, all right, fine. And I watched it and I didn't like it. I, I, we could get to like how my opinions have changed uh, shortly here, but I, I didn't like it and I never really got on board with it. I thought it was very strange and very odd. And I think part of my feelings were probably I was too young for it, um, which is definitely my fault, you know, being a dumb little kid. But my bigger relationship with the Lebowski movie is more that like, <laughs> we recently unveiled, me and you, that like when I came home from school and college, if I had like a really tough day, I would make funny noises to myself to make myself laugh because like, they're just like, you know, like it was just like funny things to be like, that sounds stupid and it makes me laugh. But in high school, what I would do, and this was like before Spotify was a big thing. If I had a tough day, I would just watch the man in me clips from the big Lebowski. Cause I love that song and I love the way it's shot and framed and that whole sequence. And that was honestly like one of my big forays into Bob Dylan in a serious way as well. So like, I don't, Love that movie as a kid, but it has had a very big indelible impact on me. Interesting. I can't remember the first time I saw this, uh, but my way to cool off is usually come home and smoke a J and listen to whale tapes in my bathtub. (laughs) (laughs) No, Have a little weasel thrown in there? I think the first time I saw this was probably like, I don't know, maybe a little bit before high school or maybe like freshman year. Um, I think it's like quintessential viewing for like, most high schoolers in, in whatever capacity your experience in high school is. And I, and I instantly loved it. And I also didn't understand it. Um, it's usually something for me where if I'm confused or lost in a movie, I have a hard time, like probably wanting to go back to it and watch it unless it's something I'm, I adamantly want to work on. Um, but the big Lebowski, I think is just endlessly rewatchable. It's a great lines movie. Like I can just watch it for the dialogue alone. Um, you know, and then some time has passed now and maybe I understand it a little bit more, maybe not, you know, it seems to be very elusive movie. And as we'll talk about the Coen brothers are 
not really very nomadic. They're not they're not really known for their insight or answers about their movies. Very Cormac McCarthy esque. Um, so I recently showed this movie to Jake. Shout out Jake. I know you're listening right now. Two time uh, Josh Pretty loser, but that's okay. I think it's one time. Don't slight the man like that. He's oh, a sorry, number one sorry. fan. Sorry, Jesus, my Nick. Back. Oh, my bad. <laughs> um, but you know. I watched this movie recently with Jake when he came out to visit me, and I could tell he liked it. He told me he liked it, but I could also see, like, the befuddlement on his face just, you know, purely because it is a a very round-and-round circle movie. Um, So I think it has its place in the culture for (laughs) various reasons, but it is one of those movies to me that still kind of feels like a far-off dream, you know, projected down a hallway, and you're just kind of hearing the muddy and, like, warped sound. You don't really get the full, clean picture. It's very opaque. I think you hit on something that's really interesting of like it is a very fun movie and i think that's why it's a little more easy to digest and unpack because it's not like the shining or 2001 these very heavy dense movies where you're committing yourself to like really dissonance vision and, and pretty much that alone at a certain point but with lebowski kind of like you're saying you can honestly go home nick smoke a J, and just watch this and not think about it and have just as good of a time because it's a brilliant script Oh, it's incredible. It's one of one. Very idiosyncratic dialogue throughout. A lot of repetition, patterns Mm. of threes. uh, Some really great manipulation of sound. It doesn't happen enough in the movie, but when it does, I really enjoy it. And those are some of the things that we'll talk about later that I'm still trying to figure out what their place in the movie is. But yeah, it's exactly. It's a great movie to just put on. I guarantee, like in some capacity, all throughout college, this was either like somebody owned this in some kind of form, whether it was DVD or on their <laughs> iTunes or, you know, ripped onto a laptop. Like this was just one of those movies that was on in the background. Um, and I also just want to say before we kind of jump into to our uh, pre-production here is just I watched this movie alongside Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas recently. And I wouldn't say that those two movies are, you know, a hand-in-hand double feature. But if you got them both lying around like I do, put them back on, back-to-back, see what you think. But the 90s were a time that were extremely expressionistic. And one thing that I really enjoyed about uh, character development in the 90s was – Two main characters who were friends could be dangerous to each other. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't necessarily have to be on common ground um, mentally or physically, which I really enjoy as well. So uh, without further ado, let's get into it, man. Let's do um, it. Well, come on, man. First germ of Lebowski can be traced back to around the same time as Barton Fink. Inspired by Pulp, De- Pulp Detective novels of the 30s and 40s, specifically Raymond Chandler, the Cohen set out to write a film that pivoted around that relationship between the dude Walter. Um, the other big aspiration for this film and its characters came from two real people the Coens encountered, who we'll discuss now. <laughs> Jeff Dowd, uh, famous American film producer and political activist. The Coens met him while they were trying to find distribution for their first feature, Blood Simple. Dad was a member of the Seattle Seven, enjoyed white Russians and weed, and was known as the dude to his friends. Uh, you can look up pictures of Def- Jeff Dowd. He has kind of like long, schlocky gray hair. Uh, he most certainly looks comparable to the dude. Um, and there's also a picture of him. I think like the first picture on Google is him holding a joint, <laughs> which is pretty fitting. The first pictures you see when you Google him are like he's got like he's dressed he's like the dude. He's got the sweater open with the yeah. button up and like thumbs up and this greasy like curly hair. He he very much is just the dude. Yes, and we'll get into that later. But like, go to any bar. Denver at two o'clock in the afternoon or, you know, any major city. And you're going to find like a (laughs) hundred of the dude. Uh, The next inspiration came from Peter Exline, 
was kind of an inspiration for both Walter and the dude from my research. He was a Vietnam War veteran who reportedly lived in a dump of an apartment, was pro- but was proud of a little rug that, quote-unquote, tied the room together. Barry Sonnenfield, director who was friends with the Coens, uh, introduced them to X-Line, also while they were trying to raise money for Blood Simple, and the trio became friends. X-Line told him stories from his own life that would then influence or outright make their way into the film. Tracking down his car and confronting a teenager with a fellow vet turned P.I., Louis Abernathy, also an influence on Walter's character, being in a sports rec league, um, changed it from softball to bowling, which I think was a really, really smart choice. Yes. <laughs> there's, there's, some, there's something so passive aggressive about bowling as a sport that I, I find fascinating. Well, there's also something so LA about it too, of like, I, I mean, I'm sure softball is like a big thing, but like bowling has this nice little niche of like, people don't go there to like win it almost. She's like, when I used to bowl, Nick, I don't know how, how big into bowling you were. And I didn't do it professionally either, but when I would bowl with my friends, I always wanted to win. And like, I get, I got upset. But most people, they don't feel like they're playing that fully. No, no. It's a very, very peaceful competition. I suppose The Big Lebowski is specifically about L.A. in the way Fargo was about the Midwest. Certainly the story takes place in the L.A. that we're familiar with, and many of the characters in the film are based on people that we know and people we've met here. By Joel Cohen during the production of The Big Lebowski. Um, having broken through with Fargo, the Coens didn't have to face the uphill burden of securing finance. Polygram and Working Title Films, who had funded Fargo, backed Lebowski with a $15 million budget. So just real quick, I want to kind of like hit on where the Coens are at in their career. They've gone from like indie art house darlings to like Hollywood's next big hot like commodity. You know, they were nominated for Best Original Screenplay, Best Picture for Fargo. That didn't happen a lot, you know, back in the 90s like we've discussed. So... Lebowski was a pretty big risk to take for these guys at this point in their career. I mean, it is their like seventh or eighth film, but like you were definitely right. Like this is the first one that really feels like, oh, like we're cashing the Fargo stock and this is what we really want to pivot to and say in a real meaningful way of like to the public and not just to like a very niche crowd. It almost reminds me if I can just make kind of like a parallel. It reminds me of like one of my favorite artists, Neil Young. Neil Young released Harvest, had the single Heart of Gold on it, which is just like one of his biggest songs. It's completely overplayed. And at that point in his career, he could have gone and done anything. He could have made anything he wanted. But he released a double LP live album, right? Like, <laughs> it just kind of like, this is a complete rejection of, like, basically anything. You know, like, if this happened now and, and the Coens released Fargo, they're making a Marvel movie in two years. You know what I mean? They're oh, just yeah. getting stuck up in that system. So... This was a pretty big shot for them to call here. For the look of the film, the Coens wanted to avoid the usual retro 60s cliches of lava lamps, Grateful Dead posters, day glows. We wanted to be consistent with the whole bowling thing. We wanted to keep the movie pretty bright and poppy, Joel Cohen. That's the thing. A lot of these <laughs> quotes are pretty, pretty punchy. There's not really a lot of meat and potatoes to be dissected, but, you know, that's what you get when you're kind of discussing the Coen brothers. Cinematographer Sir Roger Deakins, absolute goat. Discussed the look with the Coens extensively before principal. They told them that they wanted some parts of the films to have a real and contemporary feeling and other parts like the dream sequences to have a very stylized and overexposed look. Deacons on the look of the film. The fantasy scenes look very crisp, monochromatic, and highly lit in order to afford greater depth of focus. For the dude's apartment, it's kind of seedy and the lights are pretty nasty, much grittier. Filming took place over an 11-week period in and around Los Angeles. Three weeks were spent at Hollywood Star Lanes for the bowling sequences. This is kind of interesting. The dude's dream sequences were filmed in a converted airplane hangar. That makes like, so much sense. 
it really does. But it's kind of cool to me to think about. Like that's pretty. Like that's kind of like innovative, right? They were like, "All right, well, we have a fifteen million dollar budget. We're not getting like the biggest set on Universal's lot. So, <laughs> what's an airplane hangar going to run us for like two weeks? You know, <laughs> just like really innovative. I love that. It feels like something that we're seeing more and more of, just like in America, honestly. Of like, you now see like malls being turned into apartments and schools. Like mm-hmm. there's this whole mm-hmm. repurposification of just like, well, we can make this that, and then it's like, why? It's just like because we can. Why not? You just won the award for best $4 word of the episode right there with repurposation. I don't know if it's even a real word, honestly. I may have just made myself sound dumber. (laughs) (laughs) You heard somebody else say it. Yeah, it sounded good, you know. (laughs) Um, According to Joel Cohen, the only time they directed Bridges was when he would come over at the beginning of each scene and ask, do you think the dude burned one on the way over? I'd reply yes, usually. So Jeff would go over in the corner and start rubbing his eyes to get them bloodshot. Uh, I don't know. To me, it seems like Jeff Bridges did a lot of research for this movie. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> he was very method, I think, is, is the thing. Of, yeah. He put like Jeremy Strong to shame. It was like, let me really get into this character. 100%. Jackie Treehorn's house party scenes were shot in the Sheets Goldstein residence, built in 1963 in the Hollywood Hills. I have a problem with this <laughs> geographically. So that means the home that we see on the cliff is not the same home that is actually being filmed for the interior. So they moved from the beach to this home. That really confused me when I was watching it. I was like, wait a minute, I need to rewind the sequence again. Like, are those two different houses? I almost feel like it's personal to be like, like this whole movie feels very novelistic in a way of like, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of like a, like a good comparison. It does feel like a Don DeLillo book. Like there's things happening that like, you just don't feel real, but the no one's commenting on it in a way of like, well, this isn't right. This isn't normal. And so to have something like that, it's it's almost perfect for this movie to be like, well, that house couldn't be there. <laughs> um, you're right. You're very right. And that's maybe that is an intentional thing, like you're saying. Um, if I could just say two authors that really come to mind when I watch this movie, and I think the Cohen brothers would probably say that they've read them a bit, would be probably Don DeLillo. And then the other is Thomas Pinchon. Like, I knew you were say it. There's three directors in the world that like just, I think, capture – postmodern or there has been three directors who capture postmodern really well one of them i think is robert altman who was a big influence on this movie with like films like the long goodbye and stuff like that which is also a raymond chandler adaptation um paul thomas anderson and the cohen brothers just have this like sense of like um absurdity and grotesque that and violence in mm. in chaos that i think really like speaks to those authors in those elements of that kind of form of literature, which we've discussed a lot on this podcast. Um, I, I, what I think I like about them is there's just a lot of strings that you can pull on and maybe like you'll find something at the end of it, but it's just a theory, right? It's just an idea. There's no real concrete solution or ending. The movie this really reminded me of, now that you kind of bring that up, is Licorice Pizza, honestly, of mm. like in the past kind of feeling of like, going through these characters' lives, but there's no real point to any of it. Like, there might be if you really look hard enough and really find one, and we'll talk about that later. But for the most part, you're just following the dude, just trying to get what he wants out of this and be like, well, I'd like some money, and I guess I want to find out what happened to this girl. And, you know, it is really reflective of its structure that way, too, because, I mean, I've seen this movie probably close to 100 times in, in like, some kind of form, and, like, there's still parts of it where I'm like, oh, that scene, like, 
falls here. Like I thought that came much earlier. Like you know, yeah. like or this part <laughs> comes much later in the film. Like it really is like the form of the movie that it takes is very reflective of its structure. Um, Sam Elliott's sequences were shot over the course of two days. His last speech requiring multiple takes. Do you want to talk about the stranger now, or do you want to wait? Um, we could talk about him now, kind of where we're on him. Um, yeah. what a great casting, first of all, to have Sam Elliott just like with his booming, beautiful voice and that perfect little stash. Dude, um, that stash is killer. You want killer. it, don't you? It, it made me. I was gonna shave the other day. <laughs> it made me say, "Nah, we going for a stash again, baby." <laughs> Spring I feel cleaning. Like if- if you were on the set, you'd like you'd go up to like him while he's sleeping and just cut off his stash perfectly, and they just glue it onto your face and be like, "I guys, I grew this overnight. You're not gonna believe it. I dyed it. I dyed it. Like it's great." Um, but I have so many questions about the stranger because like I didn't remember him because I I've only seen this movie twice compared to you a hundred times. Um, because I was very thrown off by it when I first watched, it, like we talked about. But coming back to it, I was like, I didn't remember this guy at the all, and I have no idea who he is or if he's real. If, like, he has to be real, though, is the thing that I learned. Because, like, the mm-hmm. bartender talks to him and, and has the drink ordered. So uh, unless you're going to say that the dude ordered two drinks and the dude's just ordering for the strange, like, it, it doesn't really track. Well, this is kind of getting into, like, ahead of ourselves, one. And yes. it's also getting into my second theory in the movie. But, like, the far-off look of recognition and the dreamlike movement of the character the first time, like, the stranger is revealed to me. And, like, the way dude kind of, like, looks up and, like, has, like, this weird, like, moment of recognition on his face, to me, says that he is not real. Um, hmm. Stranger. I don't think he is. And then the way in the last scene, the dude repeats the bear line, and then the stranger appears. Like, he's not there until he says... Like, he's no. conjuring him. Yeah, exactly. And much like throughout the movie, repeating or quipping or chipping from other people. So to me, I don't know. He seems more like an omni- omnipresent, like god or a like de- like a deity, like a I or mean, like a just, just like a narrator. If God had to be somebody, I think Sam Elliott with that stash, Sam like, Elliott <laughs> with, with the cowboy hat and the spurs and everything. I mean, there's far worse people it could be. Um, I think he's real though. And I have like a crazy hot take. I think he just joins in for Donnie and he becomes a third partner in like the bowling team. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I we can get into that that later. Okay. I have some theories about characters who may what's or may real, not what's be not. real. Okay. Right. Uh, a second dream sequence as well as several days of blue screen work took place on a West Hollywood soundstage and production was completed after 11 and a half weeks of filming on April 24th, 1997. So that kind of wraps up the production stuff. We're not going to really get too in depth here. I think this is a movie that's spurred up a lot of spurred up a lot of conversation, and that's kind of what I'm more interested in doing than kind of breaking it down from a logistic standpoint this week. I think it's more important to talk about what we think this movie is instead of what it is, because I think that's where the real meat of this movie comes. Is like, is this about anything? What is this about? And just throwing out some ideas and, and more some topics on like the craft behind this movie, because this is one of the other things. This movie is beautifully shot, and everything technical about it is nearly perfect. I would agree. It's not really flashy. Like, you know, it's not no. Eakin's, like, best work in the sense, like, you know, wow, that chandelier shot in the hallway wowed me. But it still has all, like, the signatures of a, of a beautiful, like, boat photography, like, movie by Deacons. You know, the shots at <laughs> night, or the big fire on the beach, like, the use of natural lighting throughout. Like, it still has all of his trademarks. Beautiful close-ups. The opening scene of the tumbleweed just going through the whole city and how it goes from like the light into mm-hmm. the dark. It's very, very well like 
I, everything is about it is perfect, and I, I know we'll talk about the dream sequences later, but just the technical craft of them of like how they filmed what Jeff Bridges spinning around on a wire, and then the it's I don't know, it's all just beautiful. Yeah, actually, one of the things that I didn't touch on here that you kind of just mentioned was they achieved doing that, not with Jeff Bridges, but like the POV right. shot of the rolling ball uh, down the down the lane after Maud knocks him out. Uh, the cones mounted a camera on something like a barbecue spit, according to Ethan, and then dollied along the lane. CGI Jeez. was used to create the vantage point of the thumb hole in the bowling ball. Like, <clears throat> I love the fact that these guys are like, we got a $15 million budget. We were nominated for two Oscars, but we're still going to put a camera on a barbecue spit and we're going to film in an airplane hangar. <laughs> it's just beautiful filmmaking right there. Ingenuity. Um, moving on to casting now. Joel on casting. We tend to write both for people we know and have worked with in some parts without knowing who's going to play the role. The Big Lebowski, we did write for John Goodman and Steve Buscemi, but we didn't know who was getting the Jeff Bridges role. I mean... Wouldn't be a Road Dogs podcast without some casting could have been. That's right. Though the leading character of the Big Lebowski is the dude, the Coens were prompted initially to write the screenplay in order to create something for John Goodman. He always impressed him as a major talent whose gifts hadn't fully been explored. Accordingly, they wrote him the smashing role of Walter, the dude's best friend. On the other hand, the part of the dude wasn't conceived with any particular actor in mind, Joel Cohen. Uh, here we go, Josh. Do you want to take some stabs? at who the Coens had in mind early on. You've been beefing this up for like like a week at least to me. You're like, dude, you're never going to guess, and if you look, you I will hate right, you forever. If you guess this right, I, I will be amazed. Okay. If okay. you do get it right, I will think that you looked at it early. Because it's wild. Oh, wait, wait a second. <laughs> it can't be that I'm just like really, I have like a good cast no. tonight. It's like, I, no. like, we're done? Absolutely not, no. Okay, okay. My first thought... And I don't know why it's Jeff Goldblum. Correct. That's a good guess, though. Okay. I would have liked to um, that. I don't know why, but I feel like maybe Nicholson. I don't know. Like he's it was thought of, but too old. Really? Yeah. Okay. So look, I you're, you're I'm not hot. gonna get it, but you're like, what? Let's give let's give me a little crop. I got I got Jack Nicholson for a role called the Dude, and this is Jack Torrance. Like I'm pretty good at this. Okay. The um, person that the Cohens met with okay, and okay. considered. Mel Gibson. Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, bonkers on several levels, none of which we will be unpacking on the Road Dogs Ugh, podcast. God, but yeah, just would not have worked. The only thing I can think of is like Lethal Weapon, long-haired Mel Gibson ha- having like a manic <laughs> breakdown, but just that's not the dude. <laughs> that's what I mean. Of like, I immediately went to Riggs, and I was like, well, you know, he is very charismatic and charming, and like kind of cool with it. But then I remembered, like, oh, no, like, one of the four scenes you see him, and he's got a gun in his mouth, and he's crying. Like, uh, he that's not even the right vibe. Like, Yeah, so needless to say, that didn't go over and didn't come to fruition. After the character and the script became more focused and sharper, uh, the Coens said that they couldn't imagine anybody besides Jeff Bridges. Like, when they wrote, he was the person yeah. that was in their mind. The Coens' chop choice for Jeffrey Lebowski character, David Huddlestone, was Marlon Brando. But he declined due to health reasons. Uh, would have been kind of interesting to hear Marlon Brando just call somebody a loser in a bum. <laughs> just like kind of like counterintuitive for a guy. Yeah, who's loser. It's like known for just like taking huge chances and being an asshole to people on set. Like <laughs> it kind of would fit the character, though. Honestly, 
Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I guess a little bit. Uh, the Coens then considered Robert Duvall, didn't like the script. Anthony Hopkins wasn't interested in playing an American. Okay, well, Hackner, hold on. Can we stop right there? From acting at the time. And then Ornish Borgnine. Big Davy H is no slouch, but fuck were these boys swinging for the fences for a vastly symbolic part. What is Hopkins talking about? I don't want to play an American. In 91, when he's seven years before this came out, he's playing a Hannibal Lecter, an American. Yeah, but he's got that like kind of like like it's almost kind of like this is one of my least favorite parts of the movie is like a Julian Moore accent where it's like a thespian thing where it's like yeah yeah so I ate his dream with caviar it's not really f- fully anchored in London slash UK I mean yeah but like he could you could also just do the British accent that's the other thing that's very silly about some movies it's like well, if it's in America, they have to be an American. Like, some parts can just be, like, non-Americans in America. Like, this role could have been a British guy, and it might honestly make more sense with how Maude talks, honestly. And how disrespectful for Robert Duvall. He has just been getting old guy parts since 1974. Like, <laughs> they're just like, nah, you're old, man, sorry. You, you lost your hair at 38, you're every old guy now. <laughs> I mean, he's 92 now, so he would have been, like, what, 70... 78 or something maybe like six, oh my okay. god I'm way off like 60 yeah. something yeah yeah older but you but you know what i mean right like i feel like he aged super fast oh yeah by apocalypse now they're like look you're the older guy who's like already retired for the most part <laughs> and he's like i'm 40 <laughs> like we know Charlize Theron was considered for the role of Bunny Lebowski. According to Julianne Moore, the character of Maud was based on artist Carolee Schneeman, don't quote me on that pronunciation, who worked naked from a swing, mm. and Yoko Ono. Boy, does the latter really shine through. Classic. Classic <laughs> stuff there. The character of Jesus Quintina was inspired in part by a performance the Coens had seen John Turturro give in 1988 at the Public Theater in a play. Played a pederast-type character. So we thought, let's make Totoro a pederast. It'll be something he can really run with Joel Cohen. <laughs> I want to state again, that is a Joel Cohen quote, not a Nick Shaw quote. Turturro, by the way, back-to-back weeks on the show. Congrats to him. Like, yeah, what a run. baby. Come on now. I guess that's basically everything for casting, so let's head on into the box office. Um, Lebowski had its world premiere at the 1998 Sundance Film Festival on January 18th, 1998. Just kind of crazy to me that, like, I don't know, maybe I'm crazy, but Sundance seems to me to have, like, the relationship obviously has changed over 20 plus years. But it just doesn't seem to me to be the festival anymore where you're like, yeah, I'm premiering, like, my feature. No, it's Cannes now. Still get a lot of hot, like independent films and stuff and like i don't think that it's like a slouch or anything like that it's still a mega beast for independent filmmaking but it seems to have drifted away from independent filmmaking and now seems to be more for things like this you know what i mean like the big lebowski now i think would be a pretty big deal if it came out today oh absolutely like i think for sure um another movie that i'm now thinking of with this because we're talking about like indie stuff is midsummer like i think ari oster really has a lot of cohen's energy to him Mm. Yeah, um, we're going to be discussing him a lot coming up here in the next couple weeks. Uh, Film also screened at the 48th Berlin International Film Festival before opening in America on March 6, 1998. What's up? In 1,207 theaters. It grossed $5.5 million on its opening weekend, finishing up with a gross of $18 million in the U.S., just above its budget of $15 million. Now, (laughs) we've been having a lot of fun talking about this movie. This is where... uh, 
is where things are not so hot for the Coen brothers. <laughs> this is where everyone was like me, and I understood. So the words vapid and ostentatious are not usually words you want associated with your film. Critical darlings and indie heroes, like we've discussed, after the success of Fargo, Miller's Crossing, Arizona, um, the Coens were kind of lambasted for this one. There was kind of a, <laughs> the general consensus when this came out from all of my little, you know, research here was, damn, the Coens, the Coens really fumbled the bag, man. They like kind of had the world by the balls and they completely ate shit. So I think the critics really missed the boat and that's something that we're going to get into kind of shortly, but these are just some of the quotes that I pulled from reviews from like the New Yorker or, you know, the Post, things like that. What's the point of scoring off morons who think they are cool? Jeff Bridges has so much dedication as an actor that he sacrifices himself to the Coen brothers' self-defeating conception. <laughs> Bridges can't open up a character who remains unconscious. It's only amusing the first time the dude gets lost in his own story, a story incoherent that he can't explain it to anyone. Dave Denby of The New Yorker. Roger Ebert said the film rushes in all directions and never ends up anywhere. He would later move it to his great movie status in 2010. Um, Daphne Merkin, also a New Yorker writer, has adjusted her opinion slightly, but I think she really hits on some of the enduring appeal. I think it is a quintessential insider movie, one that plays in the shrewd way to groupthink, Merkin told The Post. You're either in on it or you're not in on it. But even a Merkin, but even Merkin allowed that the dude in his disconnected dudeness has a certain appeal now, maybe because the world has grown more horrendous or reality is less bearable than when the film was made. And that kind of brings us to an end of uh, everything that we want to discuss before we get into the meat and potatoes of the conversation. Well, I have a question, though. Why do you think the critics didn't like it the first time? Because, I, I mean, just judging from my own experience, I think I was just flat out too young for it, and I didn't really have the life experiences to really enjoy it in a real way. But these are, like, people who have, presumably, and why do you think it fell flat for them? Uh, well, I mean, it is convoluted. Mm -hmm. um, and there are times where think that people get turned off by its vulgarity you know it's it's one of the movies that has the most f's of all time and I, I mean we got some fuck. big lebowski's in the audience then these guys <laughs> um also think maybe due to a time of social and financial prosperity in the united states that maybe we weren't as open to some of the criticism and analogies that the film was trying to say mm-hmm um, so I think that unfortunately with second Iraq war, this film kind of opened up for more criticism and analysis, if that's makes sense in any way. It's a movie ahead of its time in, in that way. I think of like, you hit it earlier in the show. Like I think it's, it's commercial and I guess cultural like impact is still evolving as we kind of speak because the things I, it's talking about are still kind of going on to some degree. And we'll talk about that a lot more deeper soon. Um, but I think it's probably one that's like very visceral for a lot of critics back in, in 98 of like the dream sequences and just like the aloofness of a main character that's very passive. Like he basically stumbles onto everything around him. I think the dream sequences are something to me that I love this movie to death, but I go and, you know, get, get a drink when that part's going <laughs> on or go to the bathroom. Like that. Okay. Can we talk about that then real quick? Or we're if you'd on? like. Yeah, I don't like them either. Um, they really drag the flow of the movie down for me in a real way. Of we're building, we're building, we're building, and then we have to have something that really shows us, like Julianne Moore, just like a Viking with bowling stuff, and it's a really cool set and everything like that. But what does it do narratively or thematically for us? 
I, I haven't there. There's still a lot of analysis for the dreams that I haven't really. They don't. They does none of it makes enough sense. And you're dealing with no. two guys who are so cagey that you're not going to get any concrete answers. So I, I'm just. They don't. They haven't aged well for me. The like the analysis of the dream sequences. Um, I don't like them either. I do think they set up one of the dopest transitions ever, though, when the dude is running away and then it like transitions <laughs> slowly to the highway. I mean, that's a pretty dope transition. It's great, but I don't know if we need the whole scene oh. for that. Yeah, and no, no, I, I agree. I just like I really think the third act of the movie is not that good, and this is where like I kind of fell into like how I've changed since I watched it the first time to now. I appreciate it a lot more, and I like the first two acts a lot, but the third act is very just like. It's rambling and it kind of wraps everything up without telling me what actually happened. Well, it doesn't even really wrap things up. Like, it yeah, just that's kind what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> like, was the Big Lebowski involved with the kidnapping, or was he not? I still don't really know. And maybe you can help explain that to me because I'm still trying to figure that out. Because it it seems that way, and then it doesn't. And then if I could answer in a kind of Coen Brothers esque way, I don't really oh. think it necessarily matters. <sighs> I think. The commentary is to me what I've read from that is like the dude's atrophied aspirations to ever get anything done. The commentary on that generation and like the flower children of the 60s, where it's like, and these are not just like original ideas that I came up with. I'd like to shout out like storytellers on YouTube. You know, they've got some great stuff over at New Republic, Movies Up Close, Surfer Today, Film Scouts. We, we, we went and did some research because this is a movie that is really kind of open for interpretation. And I, right. and you know, I think I'm very susceptible to this form of interpretation of the movie. Um, but you'll never know for sure. But to me, that's just kind of how, like how I read it was just like the, the ineffectiveness of the dude basically overshadows <laughs> if the, he doesn't ever really know if he was involved in the kidnapping plot or not. That's a good point. I, it's just a very confusing script in that way of like, well, we think he is, but then they cut off that girl's toe with a nihilist. But why would they do that if they were in on it? But that would mean that then Lebowski didn't know about any of this. And it's just all kind of over the place. But I do think it's a good point that if the dude doesn't know, should we really know? I've heard a theory that this movie is just a giant acid flashback. Like just the dude is like kind of incoherently going in and out of like an acid flashback. I don't necessarily buy it, but maybe that, maybe if you prescribe to that, it'll, it'll like ease your mind and give you some answers. Cause I most certainly don't have, I it, hate those but... goddamn theories, man. I hate when they're just like, what if it's not real? And it's like, shut up. I don't think someone made something to be like, none of this actually happened really. Oh, we've got some talk like that coming oh, up as we head to, head on. into discussion points. They probably like fucking Caddyshack too. Since its release, The Big Lebowski has redefined the definition of cult film. Uh, in 2005, journalist Oliver Benjamin founded the philosophy slash religion Dudism. Oh my God. He's deathly serious about this, too. To a lot of people, the idea of making a religion based on a movie seems silly. It but is. I'm very serious about this. And all the people who are involved and in the religion and who are followers of the Church of the Latter-day Dude, even though they have a sense of humor about it and they don't take it so seriously the way a lot of established religions do... A lot of people get a great deal of meaning out of being part of the Church of the Latter-day Dude. I'll tell you what, Josh. Any religion that involves oh. bathrobes, flip-flops, and white Russians, no. sign me up. 
I hate this so fucking much. Ardent fans of the film call themselves the Achievers. There's an annual Lebowski Fest that the stars from the movie regularly appear at. A night of unlimited bowling with contests, costumes, trivia, live music, etc. There what are two the species f- of African spider named after the film. Analosomius Big Lebowski and the Analosomius Dude. I, I say this. all of that to say this. It's made this film endure with people culturally 25 years later. You. Ah, that's, there's a lot to unpack of what you just told me. Of like a religion, a spider, a fan club. Um, I don't, I don't know exactly. I think, I think the comedy is what keeps it coming back to, and I think the message as well. But I don't know which, what the message exactly. Like this is a hard question to answer. I think you look at a lot of the people who are given screen time in this movie, and they have beer guts. Paunchy, they don't really have any real aspirations. You know, you look at the movie like Fargo, and you look at a character like uh, William H. Macy's character. Of course, I can't remember his name right uh, now. Nygaard. Thank you. You're right. Um, you look at a character like that, and, you know, he has nothing but inspirations or like aspirations and in, in goals. Whereas, like, I think the dude's main goal is to just get a rug back and drink some white <laughs> Russians. Like, maybe I get pulled into this plot where I, like, investigate this girl's kidnapping, but, like, who cares, man? Like, fuck it, let's go bowling. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? (laughs) Um, I think, like, the ethos of the character is something that, like, is very, very easy for people to relate to. And I think a lot of, like, the physicality of, like, Walter or, you know, even Jeff Bridges in this role, he's got his stomach out as he's, like, sitting on the couch, like, kind of... (laughs) moving his legs back and forth. Like you can kind of see yourself. Like there's a, there's a every man quality to the movie that I think is not as accessible in a classic, like, you know, Ernest Bornine OR or, you know, driver yeah. and drive. Like it's just like it's something so funny about that character. <laughs> the literally meet people for driver, like psychopaths and the literally meet people with big Lebowski are just guys sitting on a couch, smoking a bowl. Like that's the difference <laughs> between the literally bees. Um, yeah. That's true, though. Like, I think there is a very, like, easier way to build into all of this of, like, no one's doing this and the dude isn't, like, doing this because, like, I have to find the girl and I gotta, it's the right thing to do. Like, he's opening, like, what the fuck are you doing, man? Like, there's, like, this simple person of, like, I know kids in high school who are very much like the dude that probably adopted that persona because of the dude. That were just, like, hey, man, I get stoned, I watch some TV and I listen to some music and that's my day. And I think a lot of people can kind of vibe with that. Mm-hmm. But to found a religion off of it, it's stupid. I think the other thing that <laughs> I'm going to leave that alone. I, I'm, okay, I'm do it. <laughs> I don't want to go into that. Um, but I think the other thing, too, that uh, it has been, this movie's benefited from is it's the first kind of cult film of the internet era mm. where it's kind of gotten the second legs through like home video and iTunes and all that stuff. Like it's, it's gone through a couple generations. It came out with this really kind of sweet spot where it was probably put onto home video rather quickly because it didn't do so well at the box office. As we talked about, it made 3 million over its budget. So it's one of those movies too, to me that is like, just kind of lived on, on Reddit boards or like whatever Tumblr. Like it's still very much, the like lexicon it's still quoted regularly like so i really think the internet has kind of given it a second leg that's a great point uh i guess i'm just gonna be kissing your butt today but that is like a really good point of like we're hitting it it's coming out right as like home videos really booming and by the time that the kids who 
yes, by the time that the kids who watched in high school are getting out of it, it's now on DVD, so they'll buy it on DVD. And the enjoyment and the entertainment you get from it supplements all of that. Because like we've talked about, you're not going to watch this like heavy movie. You're watching just like a stoner comedy that's very much like something wild or like after hours. Um, mm. And you can do that. And you're not feeling like, oh man, like what is, what is this about? And oh no, Jack Torrance is trying to kill his wife again. And so you can have that going on while also supplementing with like the deeper meaning and message as well. Mm-hmm. I think you're. I think we're both right. This is just another complimentary episode. I love it. <laughs> the maybe Batman we need just to started do- a trend. Yeah, maybe we need to do them every other week. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, you just said, "What is this about?" So. I think it's a great time to talk about that. The Coens are kind of a classic example of directors who answer a question with a question or just say, hmm, that's interesting. You know, I have this on Blu-ray and I was like looking through, I was like, is there any commentary? Like, I guarantee there's not. There is nothing on this. You get the Blu-ray, a couple special features, and that is it. They were like, nah. I also just recently got Mulholland Drive. I was like, maybe I get a little David Lynch commentary. No. It's just like some guys are just not about answering questions. Um, and the Cohen brothers are notoriously cagey. So I think it's kind of up to us here at the Road Dogs podcast to uh, decipher. What do you think this movie's about, Josh? You want me to go first? Or you want to go first? Go first. Okay. I think um, this is a very existentialist movie uh, at its heart. And I think it's really this recognition that nothing we do matters. And the real question is not like, what is it about to me? It's more, how do you approach life in the world like this? Do you want to be the nihilist who live in bitter indifference? Even though they're not that nihilistic, they're really just a bunch of German guys who are like, oh, pancakes and oh, we wear black, you know, like. Real quick. Yeah. Just while we're here on talking on that, that part has one of the best lines in the entire movie. <laughs> when uh, Bunny points to him at the pool, she says, oh, no, don't worry about him. He's a nihilist. And Jeff Bridges says, oh, that must be exhausting. <laughs> and But, like, the counterpoint to the nihilist is a person who looks at the world with, like, a blissful ignorance and, like, indifference, which is the dude. And I think you can see that a lot of, like, this movie is really reckoning with the fact that, like, people are shitty in that we are really not repeating so much. We're not really doing nothing, anything different with our lives. We're just repeating the sins. You know, one of the common themes that I kind of picked up on this watch is like greed and this idea of greed of like the big Lebowski is trying to get the money potentially. And he's like stealing money from his own charity and then maybe kidnapping his wife to fake kidnapping to get money for that. And there's all this like awful things these people are kind of doing to one another of like, He's not close with Maude and everything like that. And we also have this common refrain that we get from The Stranger in the first start of like, well, I wouldn't call Los Angeles the City of Angels. I'd call it, and then he kind of stops. So you think naturally, well, what is the opposite of an angel, a demon, something impure, a sinner? Um, And I think this movie even backs it up with uh, Donnie's death of how nothing is really permanent of like, Donnie dies, but there's a little Lebowski on the way. And the stranger then says, like, well, isn't that the nature of things? Life and death and, and birth and whatever the hell. Um, and I think it's really all about that. And you can be someone who looks at this world of, of really pain and tragedy and, like, how nothing's going to change and nothing you do matters. And I think that's deeply ingrained in the dude of an activist who's failed. And now he's living with a life of, like, hey, I tried to change the world. The world didn't change. <laughs> so how do, what do I do now? And so as an audience member, do you want to be a nihilist or do you want to be a dude? Do you want to be a member of the Church of the Latter-day Dudes? 
I think that's a lot of really good points. I think you hit on greed, which is a good one. And I kind of like, if I could just sum it up into one word, kind of poetically, like you did. Yeah. One of the things I noticed on this rewatch was failure. Mm. Um, I spoke earlier kind of of like the atrophied aspirations of the flower children and just like not getting anything done. But there's also clearly something symbolic with the big Lebowski. I mean, one, he looks just like Dick Cheney, you know, um, <laughs> leave that be. But there's this, also this attack on the bankrupt and fraudulent facade of like the Reagan era republics, I think, you know, Republicans, I think of like, he doesn't have any money. He's living off of an allowance that's allotted to him by his daughter. And he's basically just living off the accomplishments of his dead wife. Um, (laughs) Again, really touchy time. And and this isn't a social political podcast, but I think you can kind of read between the lines there of what they're kind of trying to say. Um, The other thing that I noticed too, was just this movie is really, um, interested about aggression, which is the way that uh, obviously it's said in the movie, a, a lot of situations were handled in this time frame. Um, you look at how everybody tries to go about solving their conflicts. You know, Walter inserts himself into the situation for the exchange. The, the ringer turns into a whole thing <laughs> where he jumps out of the car and Uzi goes off. His dirty underwear go all over the place. Um, they go to try and get the dude's car back. They wind up smashing somebody else's car, which isn't theirs in the first place. And then right. ultimately with the final confrontation, there's death, right? With Donnie dying and having a heart attack. So like there is this allegory that um, aggression just leads to more aggression and there is no resolution to that kind of approach to conflict, which is then informs the ending of the movie to me. Like you said, uh, it's like, okay, like, this seems so fragmented. Like where are the actual, like where's the loop that ties this all together? Um, So I think that that's just my very, very broad interpretation of some of the things in the movie. There's also a thing about like masks in this movie uh, of not quite what we don't really see people wear a lot of masks, but there's a lot of people like hiding who they really are, who they want to be. Obviously Mm -hmm. the big Lebowski is one of the most obvious examples of this. So he comes off as this really wealthy, well-to-do guy um, but really, like you said, his daughter's allowing him to live the life he has, and he's kind of just a shit heel. Um, yeah. But we also have that with like Walter, who's like pretends to, not pretends, but he comes off as this very aggro American PTSD person, and he is to some extent. But he's also someone who deeply just wants people to be around him and people to love him. You know, one of the things that I, I really found quite sad is that, like, <laughs> the dude will say all these things to Walter, and it's not it's like, fuck you and fuck bowling, that Walter's, like, hurt. It's like, well, you could say all these things, but the second you start attacking the thing that I love is when I really get deeply offended. It's not so much the gun or, like, stepping over the line. It's that. And how when he <laughs> he gets Donnie's ashes all over the dude, what does he really do? He says, like, I'm sorry, and then he hugs him. Because I think Walter is someone who craves love. It's why he's still holding to his wife's dog for him, even though she's been divorced from him for five years. Um, you have a character like Maud, who comes off as like the very, you know, independent feminist person. But the only thing she's really after in this movie is a child, because she just wants to be a mother and have someone to love her unconditionally. Um, and that's just a very common theme I kind of picked up. And the only people who are really away from that are the dude, because he doesn't really want for anything, um, the nihilists who don't think anything is worth having, and then Donnie, because <laughs> Donnie just simply doesn't care. Bring up some really good points, too, about like the failure of Walter's marriage. 
kind of that, I think that also informs what I'm saying about just, I think this is a movie that is broadly um, speaking on failure from many different perspectives. You also have the failure of the dude. He was part of the Seattle seven to like ever get anything done. He says he spent most of his time in various administration buildings, smoking tie sticks. So (laughs) you have this inability to finish anything that started. The other thing that I kind of had too, that I was talking about, and I think that you hit on too about loving one another. I think the dude is very similar in this regard. You know, Walter offers his help. He tells him to fuck off and like don't don't call me anymore, and I'm, or I'll be off the team. But then the first person the dude calls when he has a quote unquote breakthrough about the case is Walter. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they're two magnets, like I said earlier, that are just too dangerous or unhealthy for one another, but they're codependent on the other's weakness. <laughs> I'm helping her conceive here, man. <laughs> One of the things that I really picked up on with, with that whole sort of stuff is like just like the futility of hope and joy. Like no mm. one's really happy in this movie, honestly. Like I don't think there's one character who's like, man, I'm I'm thrilled with where I am in my life. Besides like the dude, but it's like a very like I don't want to say cold, but it's a very like, hey, I failed. It's it is yeah. what it is. Um, whereas like everyone else is pretty miserable. Um, I just have here also while we're on this, one of my favorite moments in this movie is Walter saying Jesus right after a rant about Judaism and and how he is breaking Shabbos. Just absolutely incredible (laughs) screenwriting. Um, I also think I also love the symbolism of the tumbleweed in LA too. I thought that was really good of this thing that should not be there in this city and in this time which is a great encapsulation of the dude of a person set in the early 1990s in a place that is so full of like anger and hate and you have grunge exploding and all this sort of stuff. And meanwhile, you just have the dude in the city of like <laughs> sin is being like, Hey man, don't, don't piss on the rug. Like that's his biggest concern. Yeah. There is this, there is this population in the world to, like I said, to this day, like where it's just like, what do you do? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I don't know about other people, but like there was a period of time where I had a couple of days off during the week, like, like Tuesday, Wednesday or something like that. I'm like, it feels wrong. Like, I feel like I should be doing something, Yeah. but like, am I doing something wrong? Because thing about dudism, you know what I mean? If I could speak here for a moment, please, as a fellow, uh, please be an advocate. As a fellow practitioner, um, is, you know, like, I'm I'm a conformist, right? The dude doesn't conform to society; he just abides. Yeah, yeah. Except oh, this is the other thing that I find funny about the mischaracterization of the dude is like he tries to screw over two people for money. Like that's not very zen. Like he tries to get the money from Mod and then the money from Jackie Treehorn, who, by the way, would love to be buddies with Jack Horner if there was like a Boogie Nights crossover. I thought yeah, about that was- a lot. Yeah. Um, both guys are like, I'm about the art of the movie. That's a production powerhouse, dude. <laughs> um, but like, there is something there, I think, of, um, I forget what I was saying now, but, um, he's a shit heel. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's, he's resting on, he's resting on his identity to pass, pass off his actions. <laughs> yeah. Like the dude's not like a, a hero either. No. Um, which I think is a good point in the script makes of like, I wouldn't call him a hero, but he's the man for that time and all this sort of stuff, which is definitely true. But a lot of people think of the dude as like this Zen Buddhist, like perfect person. And she's like, well, he's not really that either. He's, he's a bit of a loser. It, this is, this is my last point as we've kind of like broke down this movie. I think we've done a really good job or as good a job as we can. Um, 
Dude reminds me of the friend who, like, you do a task and then leave and come back. They were responsible for part of it. And it's like, you didn't, like, get that done yet? Like, <laughs> super simple. I did all of the heavy lifting. Can you just do that one part? Like, it's not a thing that they do out of, like, spite or to be mean. It's clearly because they are a tumbleweed just drifting through life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yet I think the other great thing that we should talk about that we haven't mentioned with this movie, and this goes to the postmodern stuff, is like this movie could also be about nothing at all. Um, I, I People are always like, well, this like the common theme in literature for everyone who, who kind of knows stuff is like, if something's in there a lot, it's a motif. It's there for a reason, symbolically for something. But in this movie, there's like several different occasions where characters are going to talk about getting fucked in the ass too. So does that then mean something? Like that's kind of the whole question of the big Lebowski. Of like it could just as easy yeah, about everything. <laughs> it could be about everything we're talking about, or it could be none of that. It could just be a movie about a guy who kind of flows through life and then gets caught in a detective like Noir. Um I know you haven't asked me my thoughts, but I mean this is still like along with Goodfellas, probably the highest on my like favorite list for movies that we've done so far. The idiosyncratic dialogue. I think it's largely overquoted, brilliantly performed and directed. I mean, fuck it, let's go bowling, man. I, I'd like to go bowling if I could let go of my like competitiveness, but I, I can't. So it's, it's a real tough ass for me. Um, I think that's a podcast for another show. <laughs> if bowl, road talks do bowling. <laughs> <laughs> there are a couple other questions I want to talk about. We're kind of talking about like the whole. All of this is um, why do you think Cohen set this in the early 1990s? Because it, it's very specifically set in, I think, 93 when the movie comes out in 98. Um, one, I think, like we've talked about with the political stuff, I think that's a big key to it. But the other thing is, the 1990s are a period of time where, like, you could work at a record store, and once you were done doing what you had to do, you stared at a wall all day. <laughs> like, we didn't have Twitter, we didn't have Facebook, we didn't have all these options like at the tips of our finger at the at our fingertips like i think it is a time where somebody like the dude really like there was a time where that person could really exist kind of like the narrator says where <laughs> you just kind of are you're like an npc if i could put it into like the most simple terms you know it's just you walk from one place to the other and that's your life for 365 days a year yeah um I think there's a simplicity and like just kind of monotone approach to a, a rather prosperous and peaceful decade like the 90s. Um, and then, like we've talked about, you kind of drop this nuclear political bomb into the middle of it with everything that's going on in the Persian Gulf War. I think you make a, another good point about like this has to be a movie like kind of before technology's big. Like, it's funny now to watch it where they have the phone and it's on the briefcase and they got to take it out of the briefcase and all these sort of things. And by 98, you probably wouldn't have one of those. And so it would be a much more, I guess, united world in 98 of, like, everyone's connected a lot more digitally mm -hmm. and literally. Whereas this movie's literally about the fracture of people and how people are against each other and, like, all these different things. We should also circle back to The Stranger. What is he? You just think he's a god? Just flat out that simple? Hard, like it's hard to describe what I think he is, but it's like a bard or like a like a fable. Like he just kind of like rolls into town and and 
his only interactions are with the dude. Like, I know you said that he talks to the guy at the bar, but like, you know, I think we can kind of get into this now about Donnie. Like, is Donnie real? I don't know. Like, only line that anybody says to him is, thanks, Donnie. Got it, Donnie. Shut the fuck up, Donnie. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Donnie. The dude doesn't really say much back to the stranger. The lines are very simple. It's like, I like your get up too, man. His the, the most famous line, obviously, is the dude abides. But I don't know. His interactions are too sparse. And like there's that thing where Jeff Bridges like looks far off and the camera kind of like pans out just a little bit and then like we we reveal that the stranger is there, which kind of to me felt like what we were talking about earlier, where you could almost interpret that as like, is the dude like having like an acid flashback right now? Right. Which is something that he brings up earlier on in the film when he's spoken a joint with Maud in bed after they're trying to conceive. I'm trying to help her conceive, man. <laughs> I think I've got a pretty good Jeff Bridges. It's a miracle we haven't quoted more of this movie because like that's what a lot of people just do when they I'm talk about it. Doing my best. Not- that's exactly why. It's like I'm doing my best not to because it is. Like I said, probably largely overquoted. <laughs> I think The Stranger is definitely real, but I think you the way that they film it is definitely evoking like mysticism and magic of like close on the dude. Is it pan or tilt, Nick? I know you want you got angry with me about this recently. Is it a pan or a tilt out? I, I don't I don't know how many times I need to tell you this, Josh. A tilt is up tilt? and down. A pan okay, is so, left to right. Okay, so so it's a, it's a tilt away and then a pan over. Just, just keep going. Okay, keep all right. Going. So, so, anyways, we we kind of come back into the scene after we're close on the dude, and we see now the strangers there. All of a sudden, we never see him enter or exit. Well, we see him exit is the weird thing that does make it feel like this uh, breaking up of like that mysticism of like mm, if this was true. a more supernatural character. Even though I think he definitely is partly that, it wouldn't be filmed in a way of like he has to be inhuman. He can't do normal things. And yet when he's done talking to the dude, he just gets up off the stool and walks away off frame. Like That's such a normal, simple thing to do for a character that is so like mystical. So I think it has to be a blend of the two, almost. Like It has to be maybe like, a, I don't even know, this is very odd to say, but like a deity who like lives different lives and is reincarnated and like knows all. Yeah, and like, you know, there's a reading that this movie is a Western, right? And I think it is. I, I think it could be considered a Western. You think it's Western? I mean, I think there's definitely a lot of that heart of, like, a man out of his element. It's more noir than it is Western, sure. but I think it definitely has some hallmarks of that. Oh, I, I'm I'm interested. Like, I want, I want to hear your analysis of that. Well, I guess, like, what is the classic definition of a Western to you? Because, like, if we can map that onto this, I'm curious. Uh, a man usually out of place mm-hmm. thrust into a situation must become... A hero, basically, I guess. <laughs> and that's could... the Big Lebowski. <laughs> you just described the movie, essentially. Mm. Minus the whole failures of the hero, which is then the noir aspect of the classic thing of the, the, the hero and the noir fails and the femme fatale. And like, there's all these hallmarks of it, except instead of Raymond Chandler, it's just like, hey, man, can I have a white rush? He's like, yeah, go make it yourself. Like, yeah. <laughs> all that stuff. So I think it definitely is a Western. Um, but I want to get back to Donnie. Because I, I love Buscemi in this movie, and, and I, I never considered he's not real. Where do you side on that? It's hard. It's really, really? hard. Because, yeah, dude, I've, can, uh, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it. Like, last night, I rewound parts of this movie, like, frame by frame, just to try and, like, come up with an honest <laughs> answer for you. 
he never no character outside of Walter ever matches Donnie's eye level. There's never a coverage shot where like the dude looks at Donnie and Donnie it's a reverse. The mm-hmm. dude doesn't even look at Donnie when he sits down to put on his shoes and he's like talking to him actively about how the rug tied the room together in the first scene. He never like looks at Donnie like in the eyes at his direction. I feel like that is intentional. Like I don't feel like that was an accidental thing where Jeff Bridges and the Cohen brothers that who sat down with him and were like, All right, like you're not gonna look at Donnie in the scene. Like right. Want it to be ambiguous that he is here, maybe he's not here. And I bet Jeff Bridges didn't even fucking know, right? Like they didn't even probably explain <laughs> it fully to him. So I, I that the fact that you know his only real interaction socially where he gets like <laughs> a like motivated response is from Walter. Yeah. Um, and then I guess like you said, the things that kind of like break that for me are the fact that, you know, the dude responds to him after his car has been stolen and yeah. the dude reacts when he has the heart attack on the ground. There are things in the, obviously, the Folgers can and stuff like that. There are things that make it that it could not be, right? But, like, is it? I don't know. Like, it's very, very <laughs> elusive, like, to this day. And I think it's but done intentionally. The thing that I find uh, kind of answers it all is, like, whose ashes are they collecting if not Donnie's? Like, why are they at a funeral? Like, and why is the, why would the funeral not. be taking part in it? But they're not at a funeral. They're not at a funeral. They fucking dump his ashes off of a cliff on a beach. Well, yes, but we see the scene of them with the, the mort- mortician guy. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, <laughs> it's really open for interpretation. I'm not 100% sold on the theory, but, like, I think that it has it has merit. Like, I don't think this movie is necessarily about the fucking Persian, first Persian Gulf War. No. I think it might just be about stoners who play who, who, who bowl. bowl. Like, I don't know, right? Like, it's one of those movies that, and that's why I love it, is it's very, very, very broad in its interpretations. I just think he has to be real, because like you said, they, the dude talks to him at least once or twice. They spread someone's ashes, so, so who could it be? And I think that the humor of Donnie has to be with Walter, and if he's not real, it's then this conception of, like, if the dude's talking to him as well, is it a is it something that the dude is making up or that Walter's making up? It then opens up that question, which gets very muddled and messy. And I think the Coens wouldn't, I don't know, honestly, they wouldn't want that, but it's such a giant wormhole you could go into that I don't know if they kind of would write something that deep. I think much like a lot of things we've discussed with this movie, is it, does it have <laughs> references or is it inspired by the times, the parlance of our times? hundred percent it is <laughs> like it's definitely influenced like by what's going on currently with the persian gulf war and stuff like that but like i don't think that it's necessarily about that right you know what i mean i think that it is definitely a commentary on philosophy and like aggression and memory and failure and perspective i think it's definitely got those things in it but i don't know if it is about that Right, we know what Goodfellas is about. We know what yeah. Top Gun is about. We know <laughs> we know what a lot of the movies we've discussed are. are quote I think those are your first two you mentioned. No, I'm just I'm thinking of two things. Where I know, you, like, I know. To point A to point B to point C to point D, right? But like yeah. here, you go from point A to point E, and then maybe point F rec- occurs five scenes later. But why are we going back to C now? It's yeah. very elusive in its structure and its answers. So. Where do you think Donnie comes from? Like, what do you, assuming he's real, let's just say hypothetically, like, how does he from meet Cali. these guys? Donnie's from Cali. 
He's well, yeah, but like, like, how does he just meet these? Like, he's so unlike them in every way that, like, to me, like, Donnie is like a supervisor at like a hardware store in LA, and yet he's bowling within like friends with such eccentric people. Well, I think, again, like a, a simpler time where it's like, hey, you bowl, I bowl, I bowl, I'll <laughs> be friends. Like, I don't think, like, there was a lot of, like, thought that went so behind true. it. It was like, I hang out with these three guys. I work at the hardware store. I go to In-N-Out Burger every once in a while, and then I go home. Yeah. That's, that's, you know? Like, Donnie's just bowling by himself one day. Like, hey, man, like, you want to bowl with us? And he's like, yeah. And then it's just like, all right, we'll see you next Saturday. And, like, they don't think about each other until then. They meet each other again. It's just like, all right, that's my that's my bowling buddy, Donnie. Yes. Yes, 100%. Donnie, he really is like, gets the raw deal out of anyone in like this movie for sure. Like, no one really seems to like him particularly. He doesn't have any wife. He doesn't have any kids. He dies in a parking lot of a bowling alley in a heart attack. He doesn't even die like a cool death of like, oh my God, they shot him. It's just like he was so scared that he just dies. <laughs> Poor Donnie. And then he gets his ashes right inside the, the dude's face, which is probably then in the shower drain about 30 minutes later. 100%. Yeah. R.I.P. Donnie. Donnie. dog. You know who I personally wish um, would have been ashes on the dude's face? Nick. I think I might have a guess. I wish they were the ashes of Colonel Tom Parker, uh, of course. CTP, let's go. Come on now. I am the legendary Colonel Tom Parker. You look lost. Get ready for the spotlight. We got a good old list this week, man. I yeah. I, I feel like mine. I I I did I missed yours? Yeah, my pick. Is it Julianne Moore? Uh, no, I'll, I'll let you go. Okay, now. okay. I'm adding it to the list because the more I think about it, the more like the choices she's making with the voice and the haircut and all of that got to be in contention there. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of her performance in this movie. Love Julianne Moore, um, but I, I, <laughs> she is an actress to me who I think works best with the safety off, right? Like Boogie Nights mm. or Magnolia. Like you let her go crazy. Like you let her be loud and manic. She's more reserved in this movie and like kind of like playing a, a like highfalutin artist in I don't know I just wanted a little bit like more loud and boisterous Julianne Moore I just think that she works better that way like I would have liked maybe a little more Yoko Ono in like craziness and weirdness um and I also think that apartment scene with like the Knox Harrington guy like I hate that part that's another it's really scene annoying you can just skip <laughs> I uh I guess we should explain what this is also before we get into this because everyone should be might be someone's first. Colonel Tom Parker, if you haven't seen the movie Elvis, don't do it. It's three hours you won't get back, and I, I don't want you to do that to yourself. But Tom Hanks plays Colonel Tom Parker in one of the ridiculous performances I've ever seen in my life of, uh, oh, does that make me the hero of this story? Uh, just awful. And so we have decided to crown someone who's a distracting supporting actor in all of our movies that we watch. Our candidates for this week. It's the Big Lebowski. He's tough. We have Brant, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who we haven't shouted out yet. Look, you're 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 wrinkling your face at me, but Brant Brant's doing some stuff. 
the part when he like I had it written down here when Philip Seymour Hoffman like falls over that line twice of like uh, necessary. It's necessary. Yeah. <laughs> when like in the, oh, please don't touch that. When like the dude goes to touch anything, I think Philip Seymour Hoffman's awesome in this movie. And you're right, way too late to shout him out at this point in the podcast. We have John Goodman as Walter. We have John Turturro as Jesus. We have Knox Harrington, uh, played by David Thewlis, who when I saw him, I was like, is that David Thewlis? And then I had to look it up. And I was like, it is. Going up. We have, we're going up. We're going up. We have Julianne Moore. Oh, my God. I just figured out who we're, ta- who we're missing. Do you want to say it? I mean, it's going to reveal who I think the worst part of the movie is. It's Peter Stormare, isn't it? Uh, it's Flea. What? Oh, Flea is awful in this movie, dude. It's not <laughs> fair. I hate him in this movie. Flea, top five on the four string. You know what I mean? Give me that bass. Give me the tasty licks of the red hot chili peppers all day. Stay out of the realm of acting. I mean, he's fucking awful in this movie. And it's funny enough that I saw him in two movies back to back because he's in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas for one scene. He like licks uh, Johnny Depp's arm in the bathroom stall. Yeah. And it's just, it's not good. Like he's just a bad actor. So maybe that's influencing my choice, seeing him in two movies back to back. But Flea fucking stinks in this movie. Why, why is he doing acting? Like just generally just like, why is he in it? Yeah. Like, I don't want anyone else for that part. (laughs) I don't want to tell an artist what they can and can't do, but like, you can't act, bud. You know, maybe just throw the stream away and just be content with the whole like guitarist. He can do it in the sense that he can physically say the lines and move his body. (laughs) It just isn't good. (laughs) All right. So, who are we disqualifying immediately? Because that is a great one. The Big Lebowski, no. Uh, I would dis I would disqualify Brant to start. Okay, that's fine. I just want to shout out the line of when Bunny goes, "I'll suck your cock for a thousand dollars." He goes, <laughs> "Wonderful woman, we're we're all very fond of her, very sweet spirited." He is just like, what a what a run for for Seymour Hoffman in like these three years of like the one scene in mm-hmm. Heart Eight, and then we go to Boogie Nights with Scotty uh, J. <laughs> Shackalackadoo, shackalackadee. <laughs> Come on, old timer. Come on, heartache. Um, <laughs> he's just having a, a terrific three-year stretch of like heartache, boogie nights, the Big Lebowski, and I love Hoff- Seymour Hoffman so much in this movie because like he gives so much to a character that otherwise would just be complete dud. Like the, the way life he- is in your hands, dude. <laughs> And the way he says dude, like all the time, whereas like the big Lebowski's always like, Mr. Lebowski. And then uh, Seymour Hoffman just leaned into it like he's the most important person in the world. And the way he's crying during the big Lebowski speech about what does make a man? Oh, it's just so good. And like there's some Scotty J in here a little bit. There is a little bit of Scotty J. You could tell me Brant is in love with the big Lebowski, and I'd, I'd completely buy that because he's just such, he's so there for him. But God, he is so good in this. You know, a lot of strings, a lot of what ifs, what haves. You know, it's a lot of things to keep in the dude's head. That is a pretty good impression. Congratulations. You might be the winner for Colonel Tom Parker this week. <laughs> uh, okay, so so John Goodman is des- definitely qualifying. And uh, in a way that I would just like to say, and this is my personal opinion, Walter Showback is one of my subject is probably top three favorite live action comedy performances of all time. So when I say he should win Tom Parker, I mean it in a, in a good way, right? Like oh, yes. talked about, and like he's making some of my favorite decisions of all time. 
you know, fucking dog is fucking papers. Like just the way he pronounces his lines. So great. You're not Tom Parker's award of like dubious honor almost of like you're making a lot of choices and we just want to shout it out because we know you did it and like we just want to be like thanks for doing something um, with this movie i think there's like a, enough like not so hot performances in my yes. opinion where i'm like somebody can win this award for kind of stinking yeah okay uh, let's just do this this is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass <laughs> it's just like the numerous he's just terrific you're killing your father larry <laughs> I just want to say, sir, the dude and I, massive fans. Massive fans, sir. <laughs> and a good day to you, sir, to a man in an iron lung. <laughs> okay, John Turturro was Jesus, in or out? Saturday. I'm going to fuck you in the ass on Wednesday instead. That's what I mean. That's two things of fucking someone in the ass in this movie. It's very oddly specific. If Jesus says it, and then fucking Walter says it. This episode, this part of the show turned into the quote section. <laughs> um, yeah, I but I like him in this movie too much. Just shout out real quick, John Turturro released a sequel to this called The Jesus Rolls. Um, kind of odd, based off of a French film called Going Places. I haven't seen it, but I don't really know who wanted that movie. It's just out there and it exists now, so go ahead and watch that if you want some more Jesus in your life. I have the, the description right here because I looked it up. It is written by John Turturro and directed by John Turturro. I mean, good for him. Yeah, hours after his release from prison, Jesus Cantana pairs up with fellow misfits Petey and Marie for a freewheeling joyride of petty crime and romance. Odd choice by John Turturro, like, you know what character I want to make a sequel to? The one where I play a pedophile. But, you know, good on him, I guess. Uh, hey, he's he wrote and directed something, and the Coens gave him, him an unofficial <laughs> blessing. <blessed>. So, <laughs> I think they're like, ah, we like John a lot, so uh, yeah, man, have a great time with it. Um, <laughs> He's doing a lot in this movie of uh, a lot of fat showing here of like, I'll take it away from you and stick it up your ass. Like <laughs> the gyrating of the hips. Oh yeah. That of the, like the single like long nail that's painted and the, and the, like the wrist. I don't even know what it is. The wrist brace. Yeah. It's, it's all good. in the little do rag that hangs at the back, like a ponytail. Love how his partner Liam acts in that scene too. He doesn't oh, yeah. say anything, but like he gives su- he gives a great performance when um the Jesus gets mad at the end. What's this boastly bullshit? The way he's holding him back and the way he looks like actually scared. It's just it's so great. So I I love Liam and Jesus. So I don't know if I can give it to them. I, my pick is still Flea. <laughs> okay, okay. So so Jesus is out of contention. Knox Harrington. It's it's too little for for David the Lewis. But he's really trying with the little stash and the whole like wardrobe and the voice. I'm like, <laughs> guess you, I don't know if you you don't notice it because people can't see this podcast. Mm-hmm. But like, I was so joyous until you brought that up. Like, I really like dislike that part of the movie. Like, I don't <laughs> it really like brought it you down. <laughs> yeah, I hate that part. Like, it's not funny at all. It doesn't work. It's just annoying. Like, okay. it's it's and uh and that's the thing, right? This might be my most flawed favorite movie like i think this movie is is critically flawed in lots of regards like i understand your criticism and i understand why it's just like not your cup of tea across the board 100 percent get that so like things like that in that movie i'm just like ah man that that does knock it down for me a little bit like let's let's fast forward this part i hate this part yeah yeah there there are definitely some flaws uh to this movie julianne moore i think out of contention as we kind of talked about 
So I think we got to narrow it down to two, and it's Peter Stormare and Flea. I think Peter Stormare is almost giving you your like your typical Colonel Tom Parker a funny accent number one that's not his actual voice. <laughs> I was like, "Come here, Mister Lebowski. We'll teach you some things." Um, yeah. So that's it. He wears goofy ass stuff, which is great. He takes the fucking money, man. Ah, uh, pancakes. I was a pancakes. Yeah. Um, with a nihilist, like all of that is just. That. He's doing that in back-to-back Cohen movies. He's doing that oh, in Fargo. Yeah. He's doing that in this. Yeah, they love him for some reason. I, I mean, he's a he's a fun, really good character actor. But like the Great amount face. of like the amount of stuff they've used him for is is definitely a, a choice on their part. So kudos to them. Nope. Um, but he's just doing like everything you want a Colonel Tom Parker. He has more lines than Flea. He he's like. He's out there more. Like I feel like Peter Stormare is like a nihilist that's like doing porn on the side. It's just terrific. Whereas Flea's just like the the buddy. He's a goon. It's not fair. I hate that part. <laughs> but you know what? Now that you say that, like I do say all the time to myself, and I feel like I'm. I've seen this movie so many times now. I'm like kind of looking for the lines that aren't as like frequently said that mm-hmm. I find like funnier. The great reads. And, like, that is one that I say all the time with Peter Stormare, where he's just like, we takes the fucking money, Lebowski. Like, I just <laughs> love the way he reads that line. So, you know, I think you're right. Let's give it to Peter Stormare. I do want to shout out the third guy in their little posse, though, who just walks into the apartment and just I breaks things. You. I fuck you. <laughs> he breaks things for no reason. Like, I yeah. love how the dude just, like, relaxes back in the bathtub, and then he just walks by and just matches the record player because he can yeah. Just like having so a great cool. time, that guy. What a great job that must be. You get to show up on set and just smash things. Yeah, I, I'm going to go Peter Stormare. What about you? Okay, Peter Stormare, Colonel Tom Parker. Congratulations, sir. Congratulations, my friend. Really, You really earned it. Well, I think that just about does her. Oh, don't do this. That was my Sam Elliott. <laughs> oh, no, I, I couldn't tell, Nick. I thought you were doing Jeff Bridges again. I'm getting a little long in the tooth here. All right. Well, hey, you know what, Josh? Thank you once again for uh, joining me. Thank you, listener. Like, rate, subscribe. I'm not really sure what we're doing next week. I don't even know if I'm going to be on this podcast next week, to be honest with yeah. you. Um, but we're going to shoot for the stars and uh, hope for the best here. Dogs out.